So you may have noticed that the uh, annual Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2019 went to Greta Thunberg. Uh, you're probably more connected with Greta than I am because she's a little more closer to your age than mine. Greta is actually 16 years old from Sweden. She's an environmental activist who has actually made a big splash on the world stage. She has addressed the United Nations. She's met with presidents and prime ministers. She even had an audience with the Pope. And her message has been consistent. Her message is the, the generations above us, that'd be my generation and maybe my parents' generation, they have not done right by the environment. In fact, we're in a big hurt as a world. And we got to do something now. The window of time to make things better is closing rapidly. And Greta is saying, we got to move actively. Now, she's tapped into a growing concern that is across at least the Western world. And that is a concern for environmental issues. Uh, you, if you follow what research is going on, what reports are being done, what debates are happening, they often center around environmental issues. The last federal election, environmental issues were front and center as policy issues for our country. Now, when you start talking about environmental issues, I find that Christians have some different responses to it. On one hand, some Christians start hearing about this whole theme of environmental issues, and they immediately are all in. Like, their ears perk up, their eyes go wide open, and they're ready to rush in and do something right here, right now. In fact, they would argue that Christians should be at the vanguard. We should be at the very front of the line when it comes to dealing with environmental issues. So one group of Christians is like, yes, let's go. But some Christians have a different response. They hear about all this talk about environmental issues, and they're not so excited about it. Some of them roll their eyes. Because they think that all the talk about environmental concerns is a bit over-exaggerated and overblown. And their concern is that if we focus on that, we may be distracted from doing the things that God calls us most to do. So you got Christians kind of looking at this thing from different perspectives, which raises a question. How should we think about environmental issues? What should your generation be doing? What should my generation be doing when it comes to environmental issues? How do we think biblically about these concerns? In our Tuesday chapels uh, this year, a lot of our Tuesdays are focusing on the general theme of thinking biblically about important matters. And today, I want to talk to you about thinking biblically about environmental issues or about creation care. But what I want to do today is take you to the Word of God and try to, my prayer is, my hope is, is that today will bring some clarity and some focus into how you and how I should be thinking about the, the matters of environmental concerns and all the things that are in the news today. What does God expect from us? What does He want from us? How do we do some biblical thinking about creation care? And to do that, I want to take you to the opening chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So would you join me there, please? Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be today as we talk about thinking biblically about creation care. Let me pray for our time in Scripture, 
and ask that God would help us to focus in, to hear his voice, and then to know how to respond. Father, there is, in our world today, there is a great deal of clamor and some confusion and consternation surrounding this whole topic that we're looking at today. And we as Christians are sometimes perplexed. How much should we care about this? How much should we be devoted to this? What should our energies be about? So I'm asking that today you would use this portion of your word to point us towards your perspective and your heart for the creation in which you've given us. I pray that my words would stay closely tethered to yours and that your spirit would use this to both motivate us and activate us in right ways. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me pick up for you. I'm going to pick up reading in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So what I've read you is the summary that Moses gives us of day six of creation. It's the culmination of God's creative work, and he creates the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. But God's already created a habitat for them. Back on day three, we were told that God created land masses and vegetation that grew on the land masses. And then day five, we're told that he populated the waters, the the seas with fish and, and aquatic creatures, great and small. And then he he filled the heavens with birds. And then on day six, he made land animals. And at the culmination of day six, he makes the man and he makes the woman. So that's the picture Genesis 1 gives it. It's kind of the panoramic view of the creation event. It's it's kind of the big picture view. And in this chapter, in chapter one, we learn some things that are pretty important that set a tone for what we're going to be talking about today. Did you notice that in verse 28, when God created the first man and woman, the first thing he he did was to bless them. Did you see that verse 28? And he blessed them. And then he gives them a mandate, a commission Verse 28, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
So right there, we can begin to understand what God wants us to think about when it comes to the environment. How do we as people relate to the world around us? Out of verses 26, 27, and 28, we get the first thing that I want you to capture. First thing I want you to get clear on. I'd put it this way. We are commissioned by God to rule over his creation. The Bible would say, verses 26, 27, and especially verse 28, that we are commissioned by God. We are mandated by God to rule over his creation. Now, it's clear we are under God, right? Because he's the creator. He's the one that's, he's the Lord. He's the one giving the instructions. We are under God. But according to verse 28, we are over his creation. That comes out in two key verbs that show up there in verse 28, that we are over his creation. First key verb is, look at it, verse 28, is the word subdue. See that? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What does the word subdue mean? Well, it means to take charge of something, be in control of something, to tame something. So people are told to subdue God's creation. That's the first verb. The second verb, do you see it there in verse 28? Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the, and the animals that are on the ground. Some of your translations may say to rule over, have dominion, rule. The word dominion has that idea of ruling, has the idea of being in charge of. So God says to Adam and Eve, he says to the first people he makes, I want you to fill the earth and I want you to subdue it, be in charge of it, and have dominion over it. I want you to have control of it. Okay, so that's what he gives them. We are commissioned by God to rule over his creation. Uh, one thing that I want you to notice too is that this mandate to rule over creation is given equally to the man and the woman. It's, to given, it's given both to men and women. I say that because verse 27 tells us, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, male and female. Verse 28, he blessed them, male and female, and he said to them, male and female, be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. So this mandate, theologians sometimes call it the cultural mandate, is given to both men and women to rule over God's creation. Okay? Now, what's fascinating to me is that this is celebrated in Scripture. The idea that God would commission us to rule over his creation. It's celebrated. In fact, King David, when he writes one of his psalms, takes the wording from Genesis 1, and he turns it into a song of praise. I put it up on the screen. Listen to it as I read parts of it. It's from Psalm 8. Listen, you'll hear the echo of Genesis 1. David takes the raw data of chapter 1 in Genesis and says, let me turn that into a song of praise. He writes this, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So David, he says, he looks around at creation and then he looks up at the night sky and he says, God, you're awesome. I mean, when I think about these things, and you made those stars with your fingers, it's like small, fine work for you. 
So he, he turns and says, God, you are the creator. You are awesome. But then look what he does next. He starts in verse four by saying, you know, why would you even think of us? We're so puny and small. But in verse five, Psalm 8, verse 5, he says, Yet, though we are small, yet you have made him, that's people, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now catch this, you'll hear Genesis 1 here. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the heaven, all the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the seas, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. See what he's saying? He's saying, God, you made all this. And then you gave us a mandate to rule over it. You've given us dominion over all creation. So we are commissioned by God to rule over creation. It's pretty awesome. Now, if I were giving this same talk at the University of Waterloo or the University of Guelph or the U of T or any other arena where there was a bunch of folks your age and stage hearing me, there would be some there and maybe there are even some here who would have an internal reservation and would be going, I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about all this. Like why should people be put in charge of creation. They haven't done a great job all the time. Why should people be so large and in charge? Who do we think we are as people to strut around and say, we're in charge of all creation. We're the rulers of creation. How, do you, how, how can that be? The answer that the scripture would give comes right out of verse 27 of Genesis 1. The answer is, why would God do this? Why would God give us a commission to rule over his creation? The answer is this, because he made us in his image. Did you catch that in verse 27? So God created man in his own image. That's an echo of verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our own image and our own likeness and let them have dominion. No other part of creation is said to be etched with the image of God other than people. Like God says, this, this is the pinnacle of my creation. I'm making them in my own image. So why should people be given dominion, rule over the creation? Because God made us in his image. You say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we're made in God's image? Well, theologians have spilled a great deal of ink trying to explain what it means to be in the image of God. It's a pretty massive topic. But there's a few things that we get pointers to already about the image of God right here in our text. One of the things would be is that to be made in the image of God means that in somehow we reflect God. Because in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, we know God doesn't have a body. We learn that later on in scripture. He's a spirit, right? So how can we be in his likeness? In some ways, we are to reflect him. I think one way that comes out in this text is this. God is the creator, and he lets us reflect him by being creators. Specifically, here, he says to the man and woman, be fruitful and fill the earth. In a sense, he gives us the privilege of joining him in creating life. And we fill the earth. So there's part of it that we're in his image. We reflect him. We do in little what he does in large. But that's not all in this text. I think we not only reflect God, we represent God. 
Because it says in verse 26, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. See, God is the ruler, right? He is the ruler. If you want to know who the ruler is, there's only one the ruler, and that would be God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says, to the blessed and only ruler. Like there's only one ruler, it's God. But in God's image, we represent him as sub-rulers. We're like under him, and he says, you're in my image, I'm a ruler, and I want you to rule over my creation. So why are we given this privilege, this mandate, this responsibility? Because we're made in his image. We are commissioned by God to rule over his creation. Now, if you keep that thought in your mind, that theological truth in your mind, it will help keep you out of a couple ditches. There's a couple ways that you can fall into pitfalls on this whole issue of environmental issues. And if you remember that we are commissioned, as humans, we are commissioned by God to rule over his creation, it will keep you out of two ditches. Let me tell you about two ditches you can easily fall into on this issue. One is having what I would call an earth-centered worldview. An earth-centered worldview. What does that mean? Well, if you read a lot of the literature or listen to a lot of the people who are naturalists or environmentalists, a lot of what they are saying comes at the issue from an earth-centered worldview. It's biocentric. Essentially, what they're saying is this. The earth, and often it's sometimes called Mother Earth, Mother Earth is kind of large and in charge, and we are just guests on the planet. So the planet trumps the people. So the habitat trumps humanity. And they would be earth-centered. In fact, many of them would say, listen, Listen, they, they would buy into an evolutionary viewpoint that says, we humans, we are just, uh, we're just one more species on this place. We have no more right of ascendancy than anybody else. In fact, some of them would say people are the problem for Mother Earth. We are the fly in the ecological ointment. And if we could get rid of some of the people, the whole planet would be a lot better. In fact, do you know the name David Suzuki? Do you know that name? Canadian uh, scientist. He has a CBC show, long-running show called The Nature of Things. Back in the late 90s, David Suzuki wrote a book called The Sacred Balance. And in this book, he makes the case that Charles Darwin, in an evolutionary mindset, took humanity off its pedestal of being the pinnacle of creation and knocked us down to where we should be, Suzuki says, is just one, of the, just one of the creatures. Listen to what Suzuki said. Let me, let me read a statement that came out of his book. Suzuki writes this, By replacing the moment of divine creation, when God made Adam and Eve in his own image and gave them dominion over the entire earth, with a long-running family saga that includes apes and chimpanzees, Darwin shoved the human species off its pedestal. From Darwin to the reflections of modern eminent scientists, Homo sapiens have undergone a relentless diminuendo, ending up as just another species that happened to evolve way out in the heavenly boonies. See what he's saying? He's saying that what Darwin is saying is that we are not the pinnacle of creation. This idea that God made us in his image and made us overthink. That's not, that's not where we're going. He said, Darwin showed 
the humans are just another evolved species who happen to kind of show up on this place. And when people take that view, then often they end up saying, well, you know what? The habitat is more important than the humanity on the habitat. Mother Earth is more important than the children that populate Mother Earth. Scriptures would say, well, no, no, that's not true, actually. God commissioned humans to rule over his creation. We're not biocentric. We're not Earth-centric. So that's one ditch. But here's another ditch that if you keep it straight, it'll keep you out of. And that is having not an Earth-centered worldview, but what I would call a man-centered worldview. A man-centered worldview. Here's the man-centered worldview. It would say this. We people, however we got here, we are at the top of the food chain. We are large and in charge. And so we can do whatever we want to the environment. Because we're in charge. Who's going to stop us? So we don't have to answer to anyone. We are the kings. We are the queens. We will decide what happens on planet Earth. Kind of man-centered. The Bible would come along and say, nope, that's wrong too. The Bible would say we're not supposed to be biocentric, Earth-centered, and we're not supposed to be man-centered or anthropocentric. The Bible would come and say, you know what we're supposed to be? We're supposed to be God-centered, theocentric, right? It would say, Wait a second, wait a second. You got to get this straight. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Bible would come back to us and say, no, 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 you got to remember, here's the starting place. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the creator. But then when he created us in his image, he said, now I want you to rule over my creation. So we don't end up earth-centered. We don't end up man-centered. We say, well, the Bible calls us to be God-centered. We were commissioned by God to rule over his creation. Now, you say, okay, okay, I'm with you so far. But what does that look like in in reality? What does that mean that we're to rule over his creation? What does God expect? Well, I think we get an answer to that if we go to Genesis chapter 2. This is not the full answer, but it will at least start us on the way. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we get, if you will, the up-close and personal account of creation. Genesis 1 is kind of the big picture. Genesis 2 is the close-up. It drills in. (laughs) Let me just read a few verses for you from Genesis chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight of and, for, and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Slide down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. Those are the words I want you to see. The Lord God put the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. See, here's the second thing that I want you to get. The first thing, we are commissioned by God to rule over his creation. Here's the second thing that comes out of Genesis 2.15. We are commissioned by God to take care of his creation. Not just to rule over it, not just to govern it, but to take care of it. Not just to control it, but to take care of it. The two big words in chapter 1 were subdue and have dominion. The two big words here in chapter 2, look at them again, verse 15, is the word work and keep. We are commissioned to work it. To work the ground. If you're going to subdue something, it's going to take some work. So the implication is 
that when you rule over creation, when you subdue it, it's going to take work. You're going to have to get your hands dirty. So ruling over creation will have us involved in doing some work. The second word, though, is a fascinating one. Look at it in verse 15. He commissioned him to work it and to keep it. What, what, does any of your translations have a different word there? To keep it? Maintain it. The Hebrew word there is a fascinating one. It has the idea to keep it or to keep watch over it, or it can mean to guard it. In fact, if you go to chapter 3 and verse 24, when the Lord drives the man and woman out of the garden after they sin, look at verse 24. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard. That's the same Hebrew word for keep, to guard or keep the way to the tree of life. So to keep it means like to guard it, to watch over it. And then when you go to chapter 4 and verse 9, do you remember when Cain kills his brother and the Lord comes talking to him and goes, Cain, Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's what? Keeper. Same word. Like, am I supposed to be watching out for my little brother? Is that my job? So when the Lord says to humans, I want you to work the land and I want you to keep it. I think some of what he's saying is this, you're going to have to guard it. You're going to have to protect it. You're not just to govern it, you're to to guard it. You're not just to control it, you're to care for it. And that makes perfect sense to me because God created a masterpiece and he entrusted it to us to rule over it, but to rule over it well. Imagine for a moment that uh, you, you become independently wealthy at some point in your life, and you build a beautiful dream house up in the Muskokas, okay? So you get, you get a nice plot of land right on one of the lakes, and uh, you, you oversee the construction of a home that is the home of your dreams, the kind of one that they would do TV shows on to sh- showcase it, right? And you've got the landscaping all done beautifully, and you've got the inside, you've got big plank wood uh, ceilings, you've got a nice wooden floors, you've got great appliances and furnitures. And when you finish it, you invite some of your friends to go enjoy it. You can't be there that weekend, but you give them the keys. And you say, hey, listen, I've got this new place up there, and I love you, and I want you to enjoy it. So you give them the keys, and your buddies go up to your house in the Muskokas, and they're there for a weekend, and they trash it. They get into the ATVs and they're, they're doing wheelies out in the, the landscaping and they're ripping up all the gardens that you put in. When they get inside, they're just, they, they break some of the furniture when they're roughhousing. And you come back, appliances have been misused and the whole place is trash. There's garbage on the ground. How would you feel about the folks you gave the keys to at that moment? What would you feel they felt about you? Like, if they could treat your house with that much disregard, you'd say, uh, like, were these my friends? I, th- I, thought, I thought they actually loved me. But the way they treated what I gave them doesn't seem to imply that. You see, I think when God said to us, I made this masterpiece of a world, and now I've made you in my image. I am the ruler, but I'm going to let you be my sub-ruler over what I've made. I want you to rule over it, but I want you to guard it. I want you to keep it. What do you think it says to God if we do a shoddy job of that? 
doesn't say what we want to say to him. It doesn't show the respect we'd want to show. So God calls us. He commissions us, as I put it. He commissions us to rule over and to care for his creation because he's the creator and we love him. I'd put it all this way. We are commissioned to rule over and care for God's creation. So what does that mean? How how do we live that out? What do we do on the environmental issues when they come our way? Let me close by giving you two applications. One deals with motivation and one deals with activation. What should you and I feel and what should we do in light of the truth that scripture gives us? First one is in the area of motivation. I think it says this, that you and I should approach the issue of the environment, not as some trendy trendy thing that's kind of big in our generation, so we jump on the bandwagon. Not that. We approach it from an attitude of worship. When we care for creation, it is an expression of our love for the creator. Like if we take care of creation, it's not just because the recycling company said you should do that. We said, no, 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 no. The reason, you know what my motivation is? I happen to know the one who made this. And I happen to be long to him. And I love him. And the reason that I care for creation is because I care for the creator. And I know him. See, it's a different motivation. We're not worshiping the earth. It's not mother earth to us. It's God's creation. And we take care of it because we love him. That's the motivation that drives us. So that's motivation. How about activation? What do we do? Well, I think that we do is we say, Lord, when you made Adam, you put him in a garden and he had a sphere that he would take dominion over. And he was supposed to care for the creation where he was. So you've put us in a place and we're not, we can't be all around the globe, but we're in this place. So what would it look like for us to rule well, to govern well, to care for the place you've put me, you've put us I was thinking about us as a community here at Heritage. We've got this beautiful little 11-acre plot. You've got homes. You've got other places. But here, we're, we're like here. This is our place. What would it look like for us to guard and keep this place as an expression of our worship to God? Oh, yes, there's bigger issues. There's global issues. But what would it like to start local? So here's what I, I'm bringing to you today, a way that you can be a part of this. I've met with our faculty, some of our faculty, some of our staff. I've met with student leaders, and I'm floating an idea that I'm inviting you to be part of. And the idea is this, 20 ways to care for God's creation in 2020. So what we're going to do over the next month up to reading weeks, which is uh, the last day before reading week is February 14th. I'm going to invite all of you. I've invited our faculty to be part of this. I've invited our staff to be part of this, and now students. I'm going to ask you to help us come up with, we're going to try to come up with up to 20 good ideas on practical ways that we can steward God's creation, primarily right here at Heritage, but it could bleed out and go further than that. What are things that we could do that would show out of a heart of worship? God, we do. We do value what you made, and we want to show that we're, we're in on that. So some of these, I'll just give you a hint. We've already started. Let me give you just a few that we've already begun. Uh, David Switzer and some of our team, David Brubaker. Like, for example, we've started trading out all the fluorescent lights into more efficient, uh, ecologically sustainable lights. Costs us some money to do that. In the long run, it may actually save us some money, but we're doing it because that's, that would be a good way. So there's ways that we can start to do. We've planted trees. 
We've, we look at landscaping. We, we're trying to find ways that we could say we're taking care of this little plot of earth. So what do you think? Maybe you could do a little research. I've been looking online. What do campuses do if they're going to take care of their place? So what you can do is you got ideas, talk to your friends and maybe your impact group, or you just have one. You can turn in your ideas. There's a suggestion box. It's already up, isn't it, Cassie? I saw that today. Right outside of the student council office, you'll see a box sticking out off the, uh, off the bulletin board. If you got an idea, something you'd like us to consider, write it out, type it out, and put it in there. Faculty and staff, if you got an idea, you can, you can shoot those through Deanne. Deanne will collect those. You can send it by email or you can drop it off. And then at the, uh, after a few weeks, we'll get together a team of some students and some faculty and some staff, and we will curate the ideas. We'll look at all these ideas. We can't promise to do them all, but we'll try to find up to 20 of them that we can at least start in 2020. Some of them we may not finish in 2020, but we'll start. And we'll come up with the best ones that we can as a practical way of saying, Lord, you've called us to rule over and care for your creation. We're going to start that right here on Heritage. Now, as I close, I do want to frame this issue in a bigger issue. When the Lord told Adam to guard, to keep, and to watch, to guard the creation, I don't think he just meant physically guard it. I don't think so. Because if you look in chapter 2, the very next things that happen, you get to chapter three, we're introduced to the serpent. And the serpent comes in and he tempts Eve and she eats of the apple and Adam is standing right there. It says, verse six, she gave some to her husband, to Adam, who was with her. And I'm thinking, Adam, you were supposed to guard it right then. There's a snake in the grass. You just let it go. You didn't take care of it. God told you to guard it. That means there's a threat. And when I think that when the Lord says, I want you to guard my creation, he's not just saying take care of the planet. He's also knowing that we're going to have to take care of the people on the planet. In fact, as you get to the New Testament, you find that the creation is groaning right now. Romans chapter 8 says that. It's beautiful, but it's groaning. And it's groaning because of sin Romans chapter 5 talks about how sin unleashed this world of hurt and creation got hurt. And now there's a longing for a day when the sons of God are revealed, when Jesus comes back and sets things right and he will make all things new. And then creation will be recreated. It will be all that God wanted it to be. But until that time, we don't just take care of this planet. We go after the people on the planet who've been impacted by sin. And then though I think it's important that we carry out the cultural mandate, watch over creation, I think the New Testament even gives us a higher priority. It would be called the Great Commission. It says, listen, you know this planet? It's destined to burn and to be recreated. But all the people on this planet, they will live forever, and some of them will burn forever if they're apart from God. And right now, he says, your biggest commission is this, you got to not just save the planet. You go with me to save the people. And that's why I don't think Christians can make creation care job one. I think it's an important thing. I think it's important we do it, but it's not job one for us. Job one says, yeah, but the pinnacle of God's creation was the men and women created in his image, and many of them are still far from God. 
And they need to hear the gospel. And they need to have people who, yes, show that they love the world, but they show that they love the people in the world more than that. That's why we have a missions conference coming up in just a week and a half. That's why we're going to gather and say, did you know today as we sit here, there are literally millions of people who have no knowledge of Jesus. Zero. If we're going to guard and care for this world, surely God would say, don't you have a heart for some of those people? And so at Heritage, even as we seek to care for God's physical creation, we're never going to lose sight of the fact that we have an urgency to bring the gospel to care for people, not just environmentally, but eternally. We can do both. And by God's grace, we will. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us such a beautiful world to live in. And I know we've never seen it in its pristine, full beauty. It's groaning. What will it be like when it's liberated and it's remade, and there's a new heavens and a new earth where your glory dwells fully. What will that be like? And Lord, I also know that we have a limited time right now to get a message of hope to people who we want to be there in the new heavens and the new earth because you love them and you sent your son Jesus to die for them. So I pray that as we seek to honor you by taking care of the world you made, I pray we would never lose our passion for caring for the people that you love. And I pray that we would be a school and we would be men and women. We would be faculty, staff, and students who show you that we love you by, by how we respond to this world, but how we respond to the people who need Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.